You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Owen Taylor is a profoundly passionate and creative seed keeper, community builder, and food justice activist based in Philadelphia. Owen founded True Love Seed Company in 2017, which offers rare and culturally important vegetable, herb, and flower seeds. More than 20 small-scale urban and rural farmers grow seeds for his company. Owen is also a longtime community gardener and anti-racism activist, as well as a trainer at Farm School New York. He's also a musician and part of the duo My Gay Banjo. Owen, welcome to The Table Underground. Thanks so much for having me. I have wanted to sit down and have an extended conversation with you for the longest time. So <laughs> Making it happen. Yeah. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. So it is about to be Valentine's Day, and it's also Black History Month. And I'm really honored to have you here because I'm really curious about your new seed company, True Love Seed Company. And I'm wondering if you could start by telling us um, how you came up with the name True Love Seed Company. Sure. True love is one word in my seed company name, True Love Seeds. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do with seeds is focused on, you know, ancestral seeds and, and the stories in the seeds and, you know, all the farmers that I work with, including myself. I ask the question, what is the seed that tells your story? And I really try to emphasize the, your ancestral story. What are the seeds that your people have been eating for generations and generations? Um, and so I thought, what can I, how can I name this company in a way that, you know, reflects that? And so I was thinking through, um, my own ancestry and thinking, oh, maybe I should name it a family name. Mm -hmm. And I, I've always loved the name true love, which was my mother's 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 name, Letitia true love. I had other names in the running, mm-hmm. like Vigilante Seeds. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> for, the, for my Italian ancestors and um, Grind Rod Seeds. But True Love was the obvious pick. Yeah. And um, But, it, you know, also, you know, like I say, I say keeping seeds is an act of true love for your ancestors and for our collective future. Mm. Um, and what, what culture does the name come from? What? Well, what True Love is country? actually one of... Um, Let's see. Letitia True Love, her father was British. Um, her mother was Irish. Um, but the name True Love is a, a British name, an English name. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been very focused on my Irish and Italian heritage because that's the bulk of what makes me up, makes up my ancestry. Um, but I just had to go with the beauty of and simplicity of True Love. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it makes people smile, you know, um, and it really does get at the essence of what I'm doing, which is around this like loving act of caring for the seeds that have nourished us for countless generations. Mm. Um, and so I really do try to focus on those old varieties that are tried and true um, and the ones that really speak to us um, in our connection to our community and to our families. And when you say that it's an act of love to keep seeds, I don't even know if people know what seed keeping is. Mm-hmm. Like they go to the store and buy seeds if they have a garden and put them in the ground. But what, what is seed keeping and why, why is that an act of love? Right. Well, it's amazing that it's, you're right. It's true. A lot of people don't understand what seed keeping or seed saving is. And it's, it's really a privilege that we don't know in a lot of ways. I mean, I would not consider it a privilege, but it at this point, because it's so essential to the work that I do and, and my understanding of what it means to be human. But for generations now, especially in this country, we've been moving off the farm. Um, and so we can totally outsource the production of our food, which includes the production of our seed. And so, yes, we mostly don't remember the art and um, science of seed keeping. Um, But basically, it's what we've been doing for 10,000 years as a species. Agriculture is very much a human act, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of defines who we are almost, is our relationship to the plant world through agriculture. And that started 10,000 years ago with the keeping of a seed Mm. from the wild, taking it from a plant, putting it in the soil. That's seed keeping. 
And before that point, we were, you know, foraging, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so seed keeping, well, seed saving is the physical act of taking the seed when it's ripe, holding on to it until it's time to put it in the ground and then raising the next crop. Mm -hmm. Now, most of us will buy a seed packet, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) That's my business. Um, But somebody is out there saving that seed for us to grow the next year. And so seed keeping, I use that phrase instead of seed saving um, to mean also the keeping of the culture, the keeping of the story, the keeping of the traditions, the keeping of the recipes attached to those seeds, Mm. not just thinking them, thinking of them as genetic material, um, but thinking of them as a part of who we are. Right. And being these touchstones for so much more than, their genetics or the next generation, but also our connection to our own human ancestors. Yeah. So it it comes from, um, you know, a friend of mine, Blaine Snipstall, brought a bunch of people together on the East Coast, mostly the mid-Atlantic, New York to Georgia, um, inspired by having been to the Indigenous Farming Conference at White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. And I'm really honored to be going to this conference to speak and do a seed swap and perform that's so um, exciting in the beginning of march while he was there you know a lot of um folks were talking about being seed keepers and it's really this concept that i think stems out of indigenous communities that is um like i said focused on the culture piece Mm -hmm. not just the 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 science of seed keeping or seed saving but also the culture holding on to the culture so we don't lose it i remember years ago um I'm not sure how I had mentioned to you that I wanted to grow some gourds and you sent me a packet of seeds and on it was a handwritten story about mm-hmm. these gourds and it felt so special mm-hmm. to get that, to know that that seed came from, not just from like a store, you know, mm-hmm. not from a garden center or something, but that it came from a person who had a story, who'd saved it, from, you know, it made that connection into history so, so real. And I was wondering if you could share a story maybe of, of a particular seed that, or, or plant that you think is very special. Sure. It's hard to pick one. Yeah. I don't actually know which one to pick. Maybe, I don't know, um, one that kind of gives a little sense of my background in this work. Yeah. Maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. And it kind of stems back to your mention of Black History Month. So the fish pepper... Have you heard of the fish pepper? Mm-hmm. Fish pepper is one of the most beautiful pepper plants. It's got variegated foliage, so it's green and white mixed together. And the fruits are white or green or a mixture of both. And um, this pepper really is now in circulation again because of uh, the work of my mentor and his grandfather. Dr. William Moyes Weaver uh, is an amazing seed keeper who's been doing this for 40 years that really stemmed from finding his grandfather's seed collection in his deep freezer Mm. decade, decade and a half after he died. He was in his grandmother's basement. He found all these baby jars with labels and one said fish pepper and Horace Pippin and Horace Pippin is an African-American painter um, who's very well known now. Uh, They lived in the same town, Dr. Weaver's grandfather, Mm. H.R. Weaver and Horace Pippin lived in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And Horace Pippin was friends with the black catering communities of Baltimore and Philadelphia and um, would bring seeds from his friends to H.R. Uh, Weaver in Westchester in exchange for bee sting therapy on his war injuries in his arm because he was a painter and he painted with his arm. So he needed some some therapy. He thought he'd try bee sting therapy. And so this was one of those seeds Um, It was used in the black catering community, specifically in Baltimore, to flavor oyster dishes um, and other seafood dishes, which is why it's called the fish pepper. Okay. And my partner and I use it every year in its red stage um, to make our hot sauce. Um, So this kind of, that's, you know, that's one one story that's particularly powerful because you think about what could have happened if he never found those seeds or didn't find them in time in that deep freezer. That's such a rich history especially in the region where I live, Baltimore, Philadelphia, that um, could have potentially died in those baby food jars if they had been left much longer. Mm. And now, you know, through his work, he's able to revive these culturally important seeds um, and offer them to people, especially people for whom they're very meaningful. 
yeah. a friend of mine um, in D.C., Xavier Brown, has a, a project called um, Soilful City, and he's now making um, fish pepper sauce, um, also mixed with a pepper called the Buena Mulata pepper, mm-hmm. which also came from Horace Pippin and calling it Pippin. I think he's calling it Pippin sauce or Pippin's pepper sauce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's groups down in the Baltimore, D.C. area reclaiming this history through this through this seed and through mm. seed keeping. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It, does that pepper, is that pepper native to this land or did it po- did those seeds possibly come like through the Caribbean or through mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. Middle Passage or through other? Right. Do we know? Well, well peppers are you know, mostly Central American, I think. And it's it's an interesting point because I don't know. We don't know what the story is before they were important in okay. the Baltimore catering, black catering communities. Yeah. Um, and so that speaks to the fact that the seed story can really start anywhere. And even if, you know, my family is not keeping its Irish and Italian seeds, for example, or it's like Eastern European Jewish seeds, the, the as as my... European families assimilated and lost our languages and lost our food cultures. We lost our seeds. and But I'm reclaiming that through my seed keeping of those mm. varieties. Um, and, and to me, that's an important ancestral work to do. It's, you know, and it also challenges the myth of whiteness right. for me. That's part of why I do that um, is I'm, I'm like, okay, I actually have a story you know, I, I I come from Southern Italy. I come from Galway Bay in Ireland. I come from Belarus. Um, and so holding on to those seeds is another way to hold on to and not erase or forget my, my ancestral identities. Right. And understanding there's like such complexity and difference in those, mm-hmm. in those different stories. Oh, yeah. Complete. Different. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that something um, sort of recent for you to think about kind of the complexity of your ancestry and not just think of yourself as white or is that something that you've thought about for a long time um it is somewhat recent i mean i've been doing anti-racist work for a while through through my food justice and food sovereignty work um and also outside of that and so it's a realization i've been coming to for a while that this whole project of whiteness in this country is pretty new and devastating really to everybody Obviously, the biggest victims are not white people, but we've lost so much as well in losing our, you know, pieces of our culture in, you know, if I know that for my Italian ancestors, because I've talked to my great aunt who just passed, um, unfortunately, but, the, you know, becoming American is what they would call it, um, was so important because they would belong, they would find more material success, you know, they, there were so many incentives to lose your language, lose your religion, lose your food culture um, in exchange for all the privileges and benefits of being considered white and American. Right. Yeah. So that's been something, you know, it's something I talk about with my partner who's black and who also does anti-racist work. And I know for him, it's really frustrating to be in mixed groups or, or with white folks who will say something like, oh, I have no culture, which is something I grew up thinking and believing too. Um, and it's, and it's it's as if um, we're a blank slate, right. um, which is just, uh, first of all, unfair to those who came before us. Um, yeah. Second of all, totally untrue. Right. But it's also what allows white supremacy to flourish, this concept that there is such a thing as whiteness and that we're buying into it. Right. So for me, it's a challenge to that concept. Yeah. And it also leads to a lot of white people then appropriating and taking on things like let's become Buddhist or let's do yoga or let's like, you know, take on aspects of black culture, whether it's style or music or Mm -hmm. language or other things. And, um, because people often white people in this country often feel this emptiness because they are missing something. They're often not connected to the music of their people, the foods of their people, the culture of their people. And so in the ways, Mm -hmm. um, in positive senses of, Mm -hmm. of whatever, um, European or other cultural group they, they came from. And so then there's this hunger for Mm -hmm. something else. And you see these other beautiful cultures and people often just start taking from that, which also is part of, white supremacy and right and i remember that impulse yeah i remember growing up in white suburbia and having that impulse and being interested in other religions and other spiritualities and other music and other ways of dressing 
you know, and I think there's so much power in realizing that, okay, it's for me. I mean, I'm also really geeky about ancestry (laughs) and, and, and do a lot of family tree building. There's so much to find there that is there that you don't have to recreate or take on someone else's. Um, and so it can be so satisfying. And for me as a, also a major plant nerd, finding those varieties from the towns and villages that my ancestors came from growing them, seeing the plant, you know, you know, thinking of my, my specific, um, grandparents as I plant the, that potato from Ireland or that big squash from Naples, um, is so meaningful and mm-hmm. gives me much more than I've ever felt, you know, borrowing from other people's cultures. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. It's really important, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's something, especially as talking about race in different ways and talking about white supremacy and mm-hmm. and oppression is. I think that conversation is important, and for more white people to talk about that is is mm-hmm. really important. Yeah. So I want to jump back to that deep freezer because okay. um, <laughs> do seeds last if they're frozen or if they're kept? you know, just year after year, or do they need to be, don't they need to be grown so that they keep some life in them or how, how does that work? Yes, they definitely need to be grown. Um, seeds are alive. It's freezers help, but free uh, seeds are alive. And, you know, people, a lot of times people are hearing the stories about the doomsday vault in Norway, right? Right. Um, it's very, it's a cool story. But somewhere right. there's this vault far away, deep in a mountain that's frozen, and our seeds are safe there. And it's true. It's cool. It's like having a hard drive on your computer, right? There's a copy of all this, these living things that are important to us. But the problem with relying on something like that is seeds are not just alive, but they, like I said, they hold our culture. A lot of the seeds that I'm growing um, come from the USDA's gene bank where they will keep things frozen for a long time. I'm growing a lot of Syrian crops that were collected in the 40s. And, you know, in hopes that I can rematriate them, which is a concept that I would love to lift up. What does that mean? (laughs) My uh, my friend Rowan White, who's an Iroquois seed keeper, uh, and she she is in California now, um, she introduced me to that phrase. And it means returning seeds back to their people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that someday I can, and I have been sharing some of the Syrian seeds, but then I wonder, is this even a variety still grown in Syria? And I think it's, that's, so I guess I'm coming around to the point that it's really important to grow it every year, um, that we keep our connection to it, our relationship to it, um, to just keep these seeds locked up in case of emergency is a good idea. And we need a relationship with our seed. Um, For me, I don't freeze anything. Um, I keep seeds in jars, um, in a cool room out of the sunlight, you know, with screw top lids so critters can't get in. Um, and you know, I, I know how long certain species will last like a tomato seed will last five or 10 years like that, which is great. It gives me a lot of time before I have to regenerate that, Mm -hmm. that seed again. After five or 10 years, the germination rate will plummet and it may not grow with lettuce. It's three years with parsnips. It's like one or less. So mm-hmm. every species is different. And, um, so therefore we just have to keep, keep it in circulation. If you can't grow it, give it to a friend, a neighbor, a community member, keep it alive. Yeah. And you have a lot of different farmers who are growing things mm-hmm. out for you. I mean, you have to have land to grow these things. Mm-hmm. You can't just like right. do one little pot of things <laughs> and you have a lot of different seeds. So right. what is that network of, of who is that network of people? How does that work? Well, I w- just will add that you can grow it in a pot. Okay. There are some considerations around how many plants you have to keep up the genetic diversity and the population size. But I would just tell everybody, just grow things and save the seeds. Just do it. Okay. But for my purposes, yes, I rely on a lot of other growers, both urban and rural. And um, in the past 15 years, I've been working in food justice organizations in the Bay Area, in New York City mostly, and also in Philly. And so I really wanted to stay connected to that work through this project. And um, so I'm working with, um, you know, I, I first I, I, I thought about, okay, who's saving seeds that are particularly important to their community um, that have stories? And I, um, so I approached uh, like East New York Farms in Brooklyn and uh, my partner's farm in Philly, Sankofa Farm at Bertram's Garden that focuses on crops of the African diaspora. Um, there's a 
project in South Philly called Novik Family Urban Farm that works with refugees from Myanmar. Um, and there's so many others, or maybe 25 groups that I worked with this last year. And um, so I also worked with some rural farmers, um, some of whom are friends of mine. Because I have such a large, diverse seed collection, I, I only grow two tomatoes at a time in my field. Um, to keep them isolated so they don't cross-pollinate. Right. Um, How do you keep them isolated? Just, like just, just by distance, a certain 50 distance? 50 feet with the tomatoes, okay. just, just to be safe. They're self-pollinating. I mean, to get into a little of the plant science, they, yeah. they're um, perfect flowers, meaning that they're male and female, and they self-pollinate um, usually before the flower opens, with some exceptions depending on the strength of the pollinator. Like bumblebees really get in there and move stuff around. And so... You know, people will say keep them 10, 20 feet away because I'm growing really old heirlooms. Their flower structures are a little more open. And so I, just to be safe, I'll keep them 50 feet apart in okay. the field. So that means, you know, when I have 30 or 40 or more varieties of tomatoes in my collection, if I want to offer them to the public through the seed company, I'll talk to the other growers and say, do you have room to isolate, you know, X, Y, or Z types of tomatoes? Sure. It's been cool because I, you know, a lot of seed companies with, or most really, and it's a good idea, will approach experienced seed growers, right? Because they want high quality seed from people who know what they're doing. And that's totally not my model. <laughs> <laughs> I want to work with farms that I think are doing amazing work in their communities and help them and pro provide mentorship if that's something they'd like to take their seed saving up a notch to seed production. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like me on the phone a lot with different farmers answering questions about when the fruit is ripe for seed or how far to space things. It means visiting a lot of the local farms in Philly area um, or getting together with the group of farmers from Philly and talking through considerations around both the technical aspects of saving seeds, but also really diving deep into how do we nurture or nourish the seed stories from in our communities and learn from my elders and and uh so doing both of those things at the mm -hmm. same time when you say in terms of the farms that you're working with um that they're doing amazing things in the community what are some of the things that you're valuing that they're doing uh for me it's you know i'm looking at farms that are committed to food sovereignty and food justice and so for folks who don't know what that means you know what's super important to me is community-driven solutions to um, problems in the food system. We plan in our cities, for example, for housing and transportation and water, and we don't plan for food. I mean, it's a right. new thing. If your city's planning for food, it's awesome, but it's not how we've historically done it, and we need to do it better. And so that means that food is left up to market forces, and people are totally right. left out a lot of times. Um, you know, people... And there's a lot of great critiques out there. I know our mutual friends at Soulfire Farm um, call this food a, a, apartheid. apartheid, whereas yeah. a lot of people call it food deserts because it's really a lot deeper than, than food deserts. Deserts are actually thriving ecosystems. You and know, natural phenomena. And what's phenomenons, going on yeah. in, in our cities and in our rural areas where there's no food is, is far from a natural phenomenon. It's, it's a force of... Mm -hmm. people wanting to make money in exactly. a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And so when I see groups that are working within their community to provide solutions to that problem, to provide um, food to the community through through various programs, to provide training uh, both around food production, but also around political education, around how to organize, around how to make significant changes in their communities, I would love to work with them on including seeds in that because it's such a personal thing. People can really um, kind of grasp onto this concept. Okay, yes, we're providing food. Yes, it's culturally important. If I'm in a neighborhood that's Caribbean, you know, I want to make sure that we have uh, Kalaloo and the, the, the pumpkins that they like to eat and uh, the long beans and whatever it is that's in the diet. And a lot of times it's really hard to find those seeds. And yeah. you rely on neighborhood networks anyways to, you know, someone brought some back and um but then to make sure that those are readily available that you're thinking about you know the seed quality i, I like to be able to s provide that support if folks are looking for that mm. and so that's the way that i work with a lot of these groups making sure that those crops that are so important to the community are available and that the seeds are available mm -hmm. that's great yeah. and so is part of the seed quality that when some when you're growing something like do you just say you have a 
callaloo plant. Mm -hmm. And so to get the seeds, you're letting it grow past the point of harvesting, right? Till the flower comes up, Mm -hmm. right? And then how are you knowing from whatever plant you're growing, which seeds, do you just save all the seeds or are you selective about, like, how do you improve the quality of the seeds or make sure that you're keeping good quality seeds? Right. Well, there's a lot there. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, first of all, yes, you need to know when the seed is mature. And a lot of times that's far after the plant was ready for eating. And so that's true for lettuce, for a lot right. of greens. You want it to go to flower, which means the greens might get bitter. You want it to um, totally go to flower and then the flower has to die. And so then you're checking for seed maturity, whacking the, the callaloo plant to see what the seeds look like when they come off it, if they're little and black and hard. And um, so, yeah, that's the first step is knowing when the plant is ready. And so for me, as someone who's so... Um, get so much life from being in nature and being with plants. It's been such an awesome journey to get to know plants all the way through from seed to seed. Instead of just taking that lettuce when it's young and tender, I get to understand what it looks like as a young adult, as a mature adult, right? When its seeds are ready. Um, The other question around selection. Yes, you want to, by saving a seed of a plant, you are helping that plant make it to the next generation. Um, And... So the ones that you take to the next generation, hopefully, are the ones that are the most delicious, are the most vigorous, resist disease, grow well in your climate, um, are the color that you want them to be. A lot of times people's foods are um, important to them because it looks like it looked for your grandmother, right? Yeah. Um, So I have these beautiful orange French peppers. Mm -hmm. I'm not French, but I just love this pepper. And um, it's... You know, if, if I found one that was red, I certainly would not save seeds from that one unless I was excited to create a new red line. Um, and so, yes, yeah, selection is all those things. Um, yeah, I saw on your website you have some sesame seeds that you're mm-hmm. growing and they're like a blue sesame seed. And mm-hmm. you, I love that you tell the story on the website about all of the, the history of it and mm-hmm. where it's going. So you said like you've been saving the blue seeds and mm-hmm. growing those out and that each year it's the mix of sesame seeds is getting darker with less kind of light brown, light gray and mm-hmm. white seeds in it. So. Right. We, yes. And we've been doing that for 10,000 years. Like I said, right. we shape our food and our food shapes us. Um, and so that's a really fun part of seed saving too, is you can become a, a plant breeder and mm-hmm. we've been breeding plants that whole time. Right. I mean, now we get scared when we hear that because we think of Monsanto and genetically modified organisms. And that's totally a different animal, so to speak, than the kind of passive plant breeding that we do through this selection. And every now and then I've planted something too close to something else and I get some kind of mixture between the two. And sometimes it's really exciting. Sometimes it's a beautiful result or it's delicious or it grows even better than the parents. And so then you can start growing that, Mm -hmm. save that seed and you have a new variety. Um, so yeah, that's a big part of it. A big part of the quality control is knowing what to look for, you know, what you want to bring to the next generation and have some kind of vision of the future for that plant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I have loved about becoming your friend (laughs) is that, I mean, unfortunately we don't live closer to each other, but you have this incredible online presence (laughs) on Facebook and other social media. And I had never understood quite the complexity of seed saving from the point of when the seeds are mature to getting them off the plant and into a jar or Mm -hmm, some other mm -hmm. place to save and the number of different ways Mm. getting those little tiny seeds out of whatever natural (laughs) seed pouch they are in and you have all these great videos of like threshing seeds or ways that you're you know you don't have like big machinery to do this so Mm. you're using salad spinners and Mm -hmm. and like screens and different stuff and can you explain maybe one process that you think is really interesting because you've opened my eyes to this whole (laughs) complexity of like how do you get the seed out of the plant yes I can and thank you so cool (laughs) (laughs) that's what I hope will happen when I'm posting yes you know because just to backtrack a little bit for so long like I said I've been working in nonprofits doing food justice work and suddenly I found myself in a garden alone Mm. you know and when my sister pushed me to get on social media um, I didn't realize how it would kind of satisfy my desire to connect with people and inspire people and that's really my goal with with seed keeping 
um, Instagram, etc. And lucky for us, you have like an incredible eye for photography <laughs> and video and <clears throat> storytelling beyond just the recording the words, but all these different ways of telling stories. Yeah, I really want everyone to be seed keepers. Yeah, like everybody. I mean, we don't all have to. You know, we can play our special roles in society. Yeah. I want to inspire as many people as possible to, to get into it because it's something we've outsourced to, to other people. And that's really dangerous. Right. You know, I think every community should have seed keepers in it. That way we're, we're keeping seed that grows well in our ecosystem that tastes good on our plate. Um, and so, yes, that's, that's and what dangerous I'm because why dangerous? Because if we outsource seed keeping to whoever else, seed companies are being consolidated um, we're losing small. Luckily, there's a new trend of very small seed companies coming up, but we're losing a lot of the the small to medium seed companies, um, and therefore we're losing a lot of our important varieties. And then we're also losing control over how those are grown. You know, of course, it's very scary to have um, so many genetically modified organisms out there. I do not want to eat them. I know some people are into it. Totally not into it because it also come beyond my own health and my family's health. It comes with the environmental problems and the farm problems with the farmers as we're spraying these crops with pesticides mm-hmm. and we're growing in monocultures, um, which destroy the ecosystem. And so for me, I think it's, you know, I don't generally want to go back in time, but in terms of our plant diversity, I, I really want to be able to reclaim what's been lost and proliferate biodiversity as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And the trend right now as we outsource farming and seed keeping is away from biodiversity. Right. So this is yeah. far from the question you asked. Yes, that's but, all right. <laughs> but okay, so an example of um, one crop, you want to just pick one? Yeah, so callaloo. We were talking about callaloo. Mm-hmm. You said it has all these tiny little black seeds. Is that a good right. example? Well, I'm I'm still learning, but yes, it's a great example. Uh Callaloo. This year, um, East New York Farms in Brooklyn grew the callaloo for our catalog cause, because they're so focused on Caribbean crops. But I grew an amaranth called Golden Red Amaranth, which is the same species. Callaloo is amaranth. Um, and so basically, like you said, it has to shoot up this big flower stalk and it'll start to turn brown and seeds will start to mature and they might even start dropping. Um, and so I go out there and I kind of whack this flower head into my hand and see what falls out and watch as the seeds mature. That's how I approach plants that I don't have a lot of experience with is just kind of very careful observation. And you start to see trends across the different species and crop families and get to se- get a sense of what it looks like as the seed matures. Mm-hmm. And so I wait for it till it's really hard and until and a bunch of them fall off in my hand as I whack it. And then I'll cut down at the base of the stalk because as with a lot of plants, the seeds mature at different times. Um, and so I'll take when I think there's a good amount of ripe seed and it's starting to drop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't lose that good seed. I'll cut it down and I'll put it on a tarp in my hoop house. Or, you know, I was just talking today in an event saying that many people have told me they dry seeds in their car. <laughs> They'll just drive around with seeds in the back because it's kind of like a little greenhouse back mm-hmm. there. <laughs> Um, and let it dry and mature maybe about another week. And then I'll, you know, whack in a bucket. That's my technical term for <laughs> taking the plant material, putting it in a giant bucket and whacking it against my leg on the side of the bucket. And all the ripest seed will fall. And the idea is that the less ripe seed will stay in the plant. I won't go overboard with the whacking. And then I'll take it and sift it through a series of screens, find the right size holes for the to just let the seeds through. And then I'll winnow. So all that was threshing, the okay. whacking. I'm just threshing the plant. Winnowing is when you use wind or breath or a fan um, or a vacuum to then take off the lightweight material and leave behind the heavier material, which is usually the seed. So sometimes there's like little particles or something. If you think of a dandelion, like mm-hmm. you have the little fluffy part that carries it in the wind, exactly. right? But that's not the seed. The seed is a little right. hard brown part at the exactly. end. So the you have to get those two usually. separated from mm-hmm. each other. Yep. And so I'll blow in a bowl gently and blow off the lightweight material. Um, that's how, really how I used to do it. And now I have a simple machine a friend helped me build that uses a shop vac that uses suction to separate um, materials like that. And then I let it dry. I'll, I'll lay out the seeds on a paper towel or a paper bag in a cool, dark place with a little bit of ventilation. Um, or even I'll put fans on it for extra ventilation to continue drying it before I'll put it away. I don't mm-hmm. want any moisture at all in the jar with it or else it might mold. Right. 
So that's an example. That's cool. When I hear you talk, I can just feel the love that you have for this process and for those seeds. It's, (laughs) it's really beautiful. And, um, it's making me think about your husband, Chris, and Mm -hmm. this, uh, you make a calendar every past couple of years Mm -hmm. of your beautiful photographs. And, um, the cover of your calendar this year is Chris's hands holding butter beans, I Mm -hmm. think. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and those are the those are actually the for this month for February they're right. the the photograph and so his hands sort of are in this heart shape mm-hmm. almost and filled with these beautiful beans and I'm wondering if you can tell the story of those beans just I don't know I'm feeling the love okay <laughs> sure yeah and and that that photo became the inspiration for the logo too so the oh, right. true love scenes yes. logo is that is a drawing by my friend Hillary of his hands holding the butter beans mm. and for me that picture is so beautiful because he loves those butter beans you know (laughs) he really loves them he grew up with his grandmother on her porch shelling those beans in mississippi in the delta and greenville and so and he you know that's such a powerful experience for him um and he's a farmer um and so that memory is so valuable to him to think back on all these decades you know his connection to these plants and you can't find that butter bean up here. It's called the speckled brown butter bean. And it was really hard for us to track it down. Mm. But as I was talking to him last year of what crops tell your ancestral story, you know, in some ways the question's so easy for him because he has an African diaspora garden on his farm where he grows a lot of the crops that his family would grow in the Mississippi Delta. He comes from four generations of free farmers. Um, his dad was a sharecropper as a child, um, picking cotton and, um, you know, before that, he grows a lot of crops that are from Africa, like sorghum and um, sesame and, uh, and uh, you know, black-eyed peas. Um, and so for him, it's easy to answer the question, what tells your story? But he really wanted this particular brown speckled butter bean yeah. because of that memory with his grandmother. And because even still, when we go visit his family in Mississippi, that's what's on the stove. And so... It's this beautiful lima bean that, you know, in the South, they say butter bean. It's the same as the same species of what we call lima bean. And um, so it's this big, beautiful, plump bean. And when you cook it fresh or when you pick it fresh and and shell it fresh, they're purple and like off-white and speckled and they look like little universes and they're gorgeous. Yeah, they're so beautiful. And then when they dry, you know, if you wait until they're dry on the vine, which is what you would do for saving the seed or even for cooking in the winter if you want to store it dry, they're brown and they have dark brown speckles and they're still very beautiful. So we were able to track them down through one of his community gardeners, Miss um, Pearl. Uh, her sister uh, lives still lives down in the Delta and um, we've even visited her down there in her farm and she was able to track some down and send them to us. And so now it's back. He's reunited with his, his you know, <laughs> beloved butter bean. <laughs> So hmm. that's the, that's that story. That's really sweet. Yeah. Are there any other beans that you have stories about? Because I love hearing these seed stories. It's so rare to get to hear them. So while you're here, I want to <laughs> get a couple more. Sure. Yeah, I um, have lots of bean stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll say that it's to me, it's super important for people to tell their own stories as well. Yeah. Um, which is why I asked the growers to tell their own stories and their own words about their own crops. Uh, So I've been, like I said, looking into my Italian and Irish cultural crops and finding some great stories and some great seeds. And while I was, uh, you know, I actually wasn't looking for this Italian crop that I'm about to talk about. I was communicating with um, Rachel Sayet from Mohegan. Yes, who we've had on our show a couple of times. Right, she's wonderful. Um, And uh, I had given her one of my calendars last year. And I had a page about this Potawatomi pole lima bean, which is uh, a lima bean from the Potawatomi people in the Midwest. And I had mentioned that the Wampanoag Indians had used uh, that bean to make succotash. Mm. And she emailed me and she's like, hey, Mohegans make succotash too. <laughs> and uh, she sent me, um, I think it was her great uncle Harold's recipe. Um, Tantaquidgen mm-hmm. and it included uh, this bean uh, which I found I traced tracked down and it's this Italian burlato bean so you know I, I decided to to grow that one because it connects to two pieces of my story I was raised on Mohegan land mm. in northeastern Connecticut 
and my people. And by Mohegan land, you mean you were living in a suburb that previously had been Mohegan land. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Not that you were living on a, on a federally recognized reservation no, no, or no. declared land. Yeah. No, but the, the original people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mohegan and that land. And, and my Italian ancestors moved to Connecticut to work in the textile mills. And so it intersected with a couple pieces of my of my story. Right. And so I thought, okay, this is important for me to grow, to be able to connect in that way. And so, yeah, it's this beautiful uh, kind of cranberry bean. Mm-hmm. It originates in South America, um, but was further developed in Southern Italy. And so it's this, I have a bush variety. I got it from a company called Seeds from Italy, which is a great company because you can access all of these Italian varieties here um, in the U S and so I grew it and, uh, and I've yet to try the Mohegan succotash recipe. We're a vegetarian household. <laughs> There's pork in it. Mm-hmm. One of these days <laughs> I'm going to try it. Um, with and some... is it the same bean that they use? It's the same or close yeah, to the same Yeah, What it says variety? in the recipe is dwarf horticultural bean, Okay. which, um, you know, another name for that is the burlato bean. Okay. Um, and so, so this was maybe not the same exact strain, but it was a way for me to connect to those two stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I noticed on your website, a lot of your, you were talking about telling, having all the growers tell the stories of mm-hmm. their seeds. And so many of your seeds are actually named after individual people. Does mm-hmm. that have to do with, is, are some of those the growers, some of those where the seeds originated from? Or, uh, Let's see. Well, one of them, I think the closest one is um, my friends in Virginia at Bear Bottom Farm. Um, my friend uh, Mason is the grandson of a Syrian immigrant mm-hmm. and uh, his name is Francois. And so he still has an, you know, what we call jute, an Arabic word for that is malukia. And I don't think I'm saying it right. Okay. <laughs> but I'm trying. Um, and so it's named after his grandfather because they didn't have a name for it. And he's, they've been growing it for a few generations there. So they call it Francois Syria, Syrian malukia. Yeah, but I have a lot of ones that were named uh, for previous kind of um, seed keepers yeah, um, that have been carried on by other people. Mm-hmm. That's great. So I know that, you know, story is such an important part of keeping seeds and of, of like carrying on history and tradition and culture. And story is something that I've also used a lot in community building work that mm-hmm. I've done. And, and I find it really helpful in terms of helping pe- people make more personal connection with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And is that something that you use in some of the community building work that you do? Definitely. Whether it's like farmer training or other, other work. Definitely. And, you know, especially in more intimate, like workshop or meeting settings, I like to provide space for people to tell their own stories of the crops that they love. Um, because that makes it very personal. It's no longer intellectual or theoretical or philosophical. It can be all those things, but it's also very personal. Um, and so coming to this work, creating a better world, creating a better city, creating a better um, neighborhood, our community um, is so important to do from a personal space, a place that you feel rooted in and connected to um, makes it easier to feel grounded in that space, excited about what you're doing. And that's, what's been so fun about being part of this is getting to see the joy in people's eyes, you know, when they talk about their foods. Yeah, totally. And for you, like as a, as a white male who does a lot of work in communities of color, mm-hmm. sometimes I know you, you do train the trainer programs at Farm School New York, and then you're working with all these different community gardens doing mm-hmm. te- seed keeping and growing, but other, other work as well and, and um, food sovereignty work. How does your story and how, what is your experience as a white male doing that work mm-hmm. and kind of trying not to replicate some of the oppression that our ancestors have done onto people of color and, and, and onto communities. Right. Yeah. That's been a, you know, an important thing to keep front and center through all of this work. You know, generally what it, what it looks like is really remembering who should be at the front of this work and who, who should be guiding this work. And if I'm working in communities of color, you know, I, I tend to look to the leadership of people of color. Um, and that's part of why it's been important to me for people to tell their own stories as well, because so often it looks like people in my position leading organizations or leading projects and not being accountable at all to, to the people who these issues are impacting the most. Um, and so with farm school, when I worked at just food in New York city, 
um, we were kind of leading the facilitation of the creation of farm school with 60 other individuals and groups. And that, that was part of it. We weren't just food didn't create farm school. We, we made sure that everybody was at the table creating something that would work for everybody. And that meant that instead of having this kind of top-down school, we, we had this very decentral, we created a very decentralized school that was based in the gardens and farms that we wanted to lift up. The ones that have been there for decades that have been led by people of color that followed the, the devastation of white flight and disinvestment. And so recognizing their leadership, their expertise, their hard work, and putting them front and center is super important. Um, and also the teachers of farm school, making sure that it's a, it's as representative as possible of the people of New York City, um, and particularly the people in the neighborhoods that we're working in and hope to um, collaborate with and support in having um, people of color-led food projects that are solving the problems of food apartheid or food insecurity or food injustices. Um, and so that's what it looks like for me is figuring out, okay, when is it actually helpful for me to be a, taking the lead and when is it getting in the way and when is it replicating oppression? Mm-hmm. Um, and another way that that looks is, you know, working with the groups in Philadelphia, you know, we kind of got together around the table, the kind of representatives of each one, people who were kind of leading um, the projects and listening to what, how is this going to look best in your scenario? And for some, it was like, hey, come on down, come and teach a workshop for the community. And for others, it's like, no. We, we don't need another white man to come and teach us something that our ans- our elders know how to do. Um, and I think that's super important to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and to have and to provide the space to even hear in the first place right. to know what's culturally appropriate in that s- scenario. How can I make the biggest impact and help the best that I can? Sometimes it's by not being there. Right. And knowing how to give the support in another location that can then be taken back mm-hmm. and also how to listen and learn from that community. You know, I was welcomed to come and lead workshops um, with the refugees from Myanmar. Um, And I have never seen anyone clean seeds so efficiently, so well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as people who clearly grew up, that was every day, right? right? And so recognizing where it's not me coming to provide mentorship, where it's actually, wow, I cannot believe I just had the privilege to learn from you, you know? And so recognizing that, yes, of course, um, it's important to learn from our elders. I'm still like a kid, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm also from a different context. I'm from the suburbs. I'm from Connecticut, you know, I'm from, um, and so working in, 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 in neighborhoods in New York city or Philly or wherever, um, remembering that and thinking about, you know, how do I listen? How do I learn? How do I support leadership? Um, how do I step back at just food? When I left, it was important to me to have worked for a few years on shifting, the culture of how hiring even looks at an organization like that. Why, why, when I first started working there, was it mostly young 20 something white people running right. an organization that supported communities of color primarily? And so shift thinking about having conversations around hiring, right? What are the qualifications? Who are we even outreaching to? What, you know, are there barriers? What are the barriers to having people of color on staff and leadership positions? And what kinds of things culture. did you did you find out? That's something that I think a lot of well-meaning white nonprofits struggle with. They're like, we're trying to hire more people of color, but it's not working. And so, what right. what were some of the the specifics that you noticed and changed, okay. or that you all noticed and changed? One very basic one is like looking at the qualifications. Do you really need a college degree to do the work that I was doing? Definitely not. Is life experience more important? Absolutely. What have you been doing for the last four decades? Um, (laughs) does it apply to this job? Yes. Does it, you know, and so you just graduated from college. Why are you getting hired in this position versus someone who has much more experience building community, doing organizing, building a garden, creating, you know, something beautiful in these lots that were abandoned. So looking at that kind of experience, um, thinking also about not just at that moment when you're hiring, but that's not where it starts. You start building leadership long before that, right? So who is in your internship roles? What does it mean to do leadership development? Are you really developing leadership? If so, then why aren't you hiring those people whose leadership you developed? Right. Um, and so there's so it's so much deeper than that moment. Oh, did I send it to the right email listserv to get the applicants that I want? It's so much deeper than that. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a long-term project. 
it's also about changing the culture of your organization. Is this somewhere that people of color actually want to work? Um, or is it like, does it feel like tokenizing? Does it feel like a culture that's not safe to be yourself in? So there's so many levels right. if you're making that shift. The other question is like, and I don't know, we don't have time for this, but like, <laughs> what is the role of nonprofits in social justice work? You know, mm -hmm. and, and how does nonprofit industrial complex kind of perpetuate systems of oppression? Right. Um, so yes, we can change our organizations too. And I go even beyond that, which is that why do we have nonprofits at all? Because right. most nonprofits are actually um, serving needs that we have basic needs as societies, that if we had a social democracy where our social structure actually made sure that people had food and health care mm -hmm. and transportation right. and all these other things, we wouldn't need to have all these nonprofits. Right. So I think the entire, I mean, this gets into like restructuring our entire economy, but um, it's really absurd that we're asking all these organizations to meet needs that actually we as a society should collectively meet for exactly. each other. Exactly. So. <laughs> right. They're really filling a gap that shouldn't be there to yes, begin with. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, Owen, I am so honored that you made time to speak with me today, and I hope that we have another chance to have even more conversation. But thank you so much. Thank you. This is so, so nice. I would love to do it again. Wonderful. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? You can email me at trueloveseeds at gmail.com. Even better, go to trueloveseeds.com or um, check out my Instagram at seedkeeping or my Tumblr seedkeeping.tumblr.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take and it. we didn't get to talk about My Gay Banjo, your fabulous band, but we're <laughs> going to go out on some of their music. Oh, nice. Thanks. To find out more info and see gorgeous pictures of Owen's work and True Love Seed Company, you can go to thetableunderground.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check us out on any podcasting site. Thanks for listening. Sing a seed, the future will unfold. When you're not undoing, what will you sow? This is WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM.